0: Hello, and welcome to OPG Inspire. I'm your host, Robert Roach, bringing you the latest in leading with abundance and finding the tools one needs to make a better world. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ross Tartell, a senior associate at Organizational Performance Group and a friend of mine for a couple of years. Ross is one of those rare dynamic personalities. He's full of energy and insight, always having something perceptive to say no matter the topic. Uh, Ross specializes in learning and development, executive coaching, and change management. Prior to joining OPG, he had his own consulting practice, was a North American learning leader for GE Capital Real Estate, and uh, he's served uh, as the adjunct associate professor of psychology and education at Columbia University since 1996. He's published articles in many reputable periodicals like Training and Development Journal, Training Magazine, and he's on just about every board and committee that exists in Connecticut. Honestly, the odds are that you have a friend in common with this guy. He's a natural-born networker. I always enjoy sitting with Ross and talking out some new concept, and this interview is no exception. Without further ado, my interview with Ross Tartell. We are live, and uh, I'm sitting here with Ross Tartell of Organizational Performance Group. Ross, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. It's really a good day, beautiful day, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so, Ross, tell uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself. Um Where do you come from? What's your experience leading up to this moment? What are you working on right now?
1: So what I'm working on right now is really looking at how data shapes change and how do you use that information to drive organizational change? Because without a burning platform, you don't get anything to happen. And so data then gives you a sense of the performance gap. What is the difference between where we are and where we need to be? And that provides the motivation to move things forward. That's true in people's careers. It's true in organizations. And so part of the thing that I've done over the last 20 years is I've taught a course called Data-Based Interventions, how to use data to drive change. And I've been teaching that at the graduate level at Columbia University for 20 years now. I'm teaching it this summer.
0: Great. And so um, tell me a little bit more about the performance gap real quick. So
1: with performance, if everything feels good, there's no reason to change. There has to be some reason, some motivation, and usually that's provided either by something that's not so good going on, so you feel pain, you feel anxiety, you feel something that's not right, or it's aspirational, so it's on the positive side of the ledger. So you say, gee, you know, when I grow up, I want to do this. It'll be great fun. I want to buy a house. I want to create this new organization because we can change the world. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, now, your specialty, I mean, we have many specialties, but I would say one of them is definitely training and talent development. Um, so when you work with new teachers or with new leaders, um, what is usually the first thing that you see in their work or something that they're doing that they can improve upon? What's the common, the common misconception or the common problem?
1: The common problem is generally getting into the other person's point of view standing in their shoes, and understanding what's going on, for want of a better word, behind their eyeballs. So if you can get their perspective, suddenly you have the insight to provide the leverage, to understand their needs, to understand what they want to accomplish, and you can adjust. Part of the theme in my life, and it's been part of my background through My counseling background, my business background, my my research is how do you change the trajectory of people's lives in a way that's beneficial? Mm -hmm. It's easy to do bad things. It's hard to get them to move into great uh, territory, into great doing great things.
0: Would you call that awareness, you know, kind of an an empathy of some sort, you know, that the leaders can... That you know, leaders are able to understand not only what their company needs, but what their individual employees need as well?
1: Well, you might call it empathy, but it's really just the skill of being able to take the other person's point of view. People do it in debate. People do it in politics. People do it in normal conversation. When you're in a relationship, you have to do it. And when you're leading and managing, you need to understand where those folks are coming from because that gives you the
0: insight to help lead them. So uh, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you in here today was to talk about uh, a model that you have been teaching for quite some time called the Seven Twenty Ten model. Um Could you describe this model real quick for me? Yeah, it
1: originally came out of some work done by the Center for Creative Leadership. And they did a study and they looked at how people did different things. And they basically said, people learn in three different ways. They learn on the job. They learn through conversations like what we're having right now. Or they learn through a formal training process. So most of what you need to know in order to be successful on the job, you learn by doing the job. That's 70%. The next 20% happens in these conversations. I don't know how to do this. Can you show me? You have a mentoring conversation. Someone says, you know, let me give you a little feedback. Very fine, very simple, but it's a conversation. It can be a little more structured. It could be informal. That's 20%. The last is, and it's very important because we spend so much time in school, is the formal training process, the formal learning process, you take a course, you take a webinar, you're doing some e-learning, you uh, the, you may do a, a structured self-study, but what that does is it gives you the basics and then you can move ahead from there. So once you've got the basics, it's kind of like learning any skill. You know, you got to get someone or some way you you get the very basics and then you learn how to move from beyond that and, and work in ways that are creative and and make a difference
0: so why would recognizing this formula be beneficial or make a difference in the workplace You know, even just being aware of it you know it seems to me that it kind of is in some ways already naturally occurring so how does learning about it kind of influence the way that someone might you know a leader might bring a team to to the next level or something like
1: that. So there's two perspectives in this. One is I've spent my life in organizations and consulting to organizations, spent 18 years at Pfizer, spent a couple of years at GE in leadership and talent and communication. And so what happens is you get a senior leader, got a problem in their organization. They say, I need a training program. Can you fix this? So, Suddenly they think there's a training program that's going to fix this and it has to be formal and it has to be classroom and it's going to be expensive. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not necessarily the case. There's lots of ways to get people skilled up. And the first thing you need to do is say, is this a skill problem? Is this a knowledge problem? Maybe something else is going on. But that's part of the 70-20-10. Interesting. How do you approach it that way? The second thing that happens is that Managers say, my people aren't engaged, they're not developing, and they run into real problems. And one of the components of employee engagement is employees feel like they're learning, they're developing. In the world we're in, organizations and and employees have a different contract. It used to be the organization and the employee knew they were going to try and be married for life. Things would happen, but that was the idea. That is no longer the case. It's what can you do for me today, tomorrow, and what have you done for me yesterday, which doesn't count that much. It's what can you do. So in terms of that, the contract now is the employee says, what am I getting out of the relationship and how am I building my future? If I'm not getting that, why should I stay? Why should I be engaged? No one cares about me. And one of the ways the manager shows they care is they say, developing. And that employee feels like they're developing for the future. So that becomes a very important part of the equity relationship that keeps employees engaged because they see they're getting something out of it. And from a manager's perspective, they know what they can do to engage employees. So it's a very important tool.
0: Mm -hmm. And something that that sprung to my mind immediately when I saw this model was that it seems that it would be a little skewed in more in the direction of formal training at the beginning of someone's work, and then maybe kind of go towards 72010 or even be more in, you know, more and more kind of their learning would be from on the job because they're interacting less and less. Is it kind of idyllic to try to maintain this ratio throughout a person's, you know, as if we're assuming that they're developing throughout their entire job or, or position at a company?
1: It's really task-specific. So if you're learning to cook, what do you do at the very beginning when you're learning to cook? You need to learn how to boil water. You need to maybe how to crack an egg, follow a recipe. And that is something where someone is teaching you. They're very task-specific. But after you do that, then you say, gee, you know, let me try a couple of recipes and pull them together. Or let me make something up. And suddenly you move through the process. Same thing if you're learning a sport, say tennis or golf. Same thing with management. Management is a skill. Leadership, to a large extent, is a skill. And so early on, to learn that specific skill, you may have to learn how to manage a project to take a course. You may have to learn how to give a piece of feedback. So you learn that specific skill skill model. And then you move from there.
0: Now, I mean, the, a big obvious discrepancy in this ratio is that we've got the 70% learning on the job, 10% is formally taught. Um, which is a a small amount, um, the 10% and, you know, something that I'm a big advocate is teaching people the tools to learn how to learn and, you know, how they can teach themselves. Um, you know, and I really appreciate when a manager or a leader is able to give someone the skills, not just to teach them the literal information on how to do it, but teach them the skills, how to find the information if they need it. Um, would you agree that, in, or how, would, well, how do you react to that kind of concept in relation to this sort of model?
1: Well, it works very well with this sort of model, because early on, you need to learn the pathways to approach it. Later, you'll practice it and, and start to do it more on your own, but sometimes you'll get that little performance gap. You'll say, gee, you know, I'm a little frustrated. What's going on here? And you need to be able to self-diagnose. Or you have a conversation like we're having, which will then give you the insight. Someone will give you some some ideas, a perspective, give you a little feedback, and suddenly the light bulb goes on, and then you can adjust. You can't do that unless you uh, know how to do it in the first place.
0: The empiric or the the data that supports this um, this project, I believe, is something like a couple hundred executive level. Uh, company owners or, or something along those lines were were pulled for this project. And I would be, do you think that if we were to pull a lot of lower-level or mid-level employees in companies that the data would be different in some way?
1: So, actually, no. Uh, one of the exercises I do when I do a presentation on this and when I write about it, uh, and I've set, done this with hundreds of employees, hundreds of people, is I say, how did you... Think about what you do that makes you very successful on the job. I want to know the knowledge, the skill, and you can name it. Sometimes it's project management. Sometimes it's political acumen. Whatever it may be, based on your job, what makes you very successful? Then the next question is, well, how did you learn it? And you just brainstorm that. And they always fall into a, a pattern. 70 on the job, 20 these types of discussions. Ten, formal training. And sometimes it's 80, you know, it's a little different, but it's always those three categories. So that's how that works. There's one emerging category that uh, comes out of work by Deloitte by Burson, and that is there are now performance support systems. So when you need to find something, what do you do? You Google it. And so that's a performance support system that helps you get knowledge and skills. It may give you some feedback. It may be something uh, that you build into a system. We have self-driving cars. It beeps when you're getting too close to the guy in front of you. So that's not a learning. That's something that's built into the system that provides you with information that then guides your action. So that's another area that gives you a view of the organization as a living breathing system that is a little different and adds on very nicely to 702010
0: so i want to move a little bit more to um towards another side of this discussion which i think a lot of people could relate to is you know when you're on the job or when you're you know part of an organization a club a sports team um and problems start to occur the first thing that everybody does is they think okay well so-and-so did this one thing wrong, and, um, and therefore, they're the reason that the problem occurred. And, uh, you know, they need training. They need to be addressed. Um, but uh, many times, it's, you know, the system or the organization itself, there's a systemic problem that needs to be addressed. It's not just that one person. Um, I, however, would say that there are situations where there is a person, you know one person who's having a lot of trouble or, or they do need to be addressed directly. How do you know when something is anecdotal rather than systemic, how a problem can be addressed through training or through development?
1: So Edward Stemming had this famous quote called, "In God we trust everybody else bring data." And so you've got to do a little bit of data collection and diagnosis. To understand what's really going on because people normally say oh it's a interpersonal issue Ross has done this and he's got a problem and he's the cause and in fact that may be the case it may not be the case and so one of the things that comes out of seventy twenty ten is maybe something's going on on the job that's an issue maybe something's going on interpersonally that's an issue and there's all sorts of organizational models So there's a a team model called the Grippy model, goals, roles, processes, interpersonal. And what it says is if there's a goal problem, everybody thinks it's an interpersonal issue, but people aren't bought into the goals. If there's a question with roles and responsibilities, they don't meet, they overlap, People fight like hell. They call it an interpersonal issue. It's a roles and responsibilities issue. So, And it goes on like that. And there are lots of models. But the key is to get your frame of reference beyond just the individual so you do a good diagnosis, so you get the data, so you understand the performance gap, and then you can close it. Without good data, then what you have is managerial malpractice. You don't want to go to a doctor and just have them give you two aspirin regardless of what you have.
0: Right. Interesting. I like that analogy. And uh this really ties into what you were saying that you're working on right now, which is finding ways or teaching how data can cha- shape change at companies and um with the uh the leaders that you work with to affect that performance gap. Yes. Um well, I have a quick question as kind of a more personalized question for you. Um you know, we're good friends. I've been working with you for a long time yeah. at this point yeah. <laughs> and and uh I uh you know, I, something that I'm curious about is is who do you admire as a teacher or a leader in your life, and, and why do you feel that way?
1: There's a couple of people. One who's really influenced my thinking tremendously is Ken Blanchard, and specifically in the area, he said, of, of just a couple of things around situational leadership. He's a guru of situational leadership, and part of that is understanding that success is often based on what you do, the specific task that you are working on, and that from a leadership perspective, uh, people need to focus on where you are developmentally, and that changes your leadership style. If you have no clue what you're doing, then a manager needs to be a little more directive or get you critical information. If you're a rocket scientist and you've been doing this for years, then you just set goals and you get out of the way. Second thing he said is, leadership really happens when you're not there. What do people do when you're not in the room? It's not when you're in the room and can watch and tell and direct. It's what happens when you're not in the room. So those are two things that I thought were very important. The second person who really influenced my life was a fellow named Morton Deutsch. He, he focuses on conflict resolution and constructive conflict resolution. Conflict occurs all the time, and that happens in the debate of life, and you see it in politics, and you see it everywhere. What he really focused on, uh, and he did this internationally and domestically, was to create common ground so that you had a place to start the conversation. Once you start that common ground and get a common goal and a common focus, you can start to build the relationships and the understanding to change the world. If you fight dirty all the time, bad conflict drives out good conflict. And so that really relates to the world in which we live and as the work and to the work of the manager. If you can stay optimistic, if you can build common ground, if you can talk a common vision, suddenly the world will move in a direction that leads to future success. If you don't, then what happens is you have people leaving you the organization will fall and you'll have a toxic work environment and you don't want that. I think we're starting to see a little bit of that in the news. <laughs> oh, you see it a lot in the news. And it's one of the things I find very disturbing. You've seen over the last 15, 10 or 15 years, uh, a change in the civility in the culture of organizations and of America. And it is not going, to, it's not a good thing. People don't want to live in toxic environments. They want to live in places where they're creating a future and it's collaborative and it's useful.
0: You know, I think that we have in many ways forgotten the concept of constructive and collaborative conflict, you know, and that in, you know, in in conflict, we can find common ground and we can find good solutions even better than if there were no conflict in the beginning. Um, I, uh, have been seeing a lot of conflict that, as you were saying, that's more toxic. That is less, it's less, it's not even oriented towards finding a constructive, <laughs> uh, a constructive uh, end goal. Um, well, thank you for, uh, for telling me about those teachers and leaders. Um, it seems that they have one, you know, one aspect is—is is there's a lot of trust involved with being those kind of leaders, you know, being someone who can share that kind of information with your employees, and also giving the employees the space to expand in their own work without you. And you know, as a good leader, it's as you're saying, it's what they do when you're outside of the room. Um, that is, I think that ties in. We've been t- uh, talking a lot about abundance leadership in recent um, recent podcasts and. uh, that concept of sharing data and sharing ideas and giving the space to expand.
1: So let's come back to the concept of abundance leadership because that's a very important idea. An abundant leader believes that there is there are resources and perspectives, and it's important to share. There's a history to that around Theory X, Theory Y. If you remember, Theory X, uh, people are people need to be managed and controlled. And, and focus because they really don't know. Uh, theory Y, people grow, they grow, they learn, they want to do well, they self-actualize. Abundance leadership comes out of some of that history because what you have in life is people who can really do things and given the opportunity can take an organization and themselves to places they haven't even thought about. And that is is what we need to have to take this world in which we're in, or the organization that you're in, or the life that you're leading, and take it to a place that is useful and productive and will make a difference in society and for yourself.
0: So many of our – I mean, we all are teachers and leaders in some way. Um, You know, given no context for what all of our listeners are doing with their lives, um, what is some – you know advice that you could say right off the bat that how how we can improve in the ways that we teach other people new things in the way that we lead other people through different and new projects or or ideas or or movements in our lives
1: so there are two perspectives on this one is you need to have some idea of what that person when they're looking out into the world that they see that they consider important now, sometimes they're clueless. We all are at some point in our lives because we, you know, we have blinders. Everyone has a blinder. Everyone's got a, a view of the world. And so you can help them by providing a little bit of feedback that would help them understand what they're seeing and how to see it through a slightly different lens. So once you do that, you focus specifically on the task. And that was something that Ken Blanchard talked about a great deal. Focus on the task that they need to accomplish, that they want to do, that makes a difference in the organization or in their life. It depends on, you know, what is motivating them. And then focus on that. And depending on where they are, depends on how you teach them. Whether you're directive or whether you're just saying, you know, you can do it, or there's the goal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You're on board?
0: Yeah.
1: So that changes one thing. The second is to think through very carefully the process of your teaching so there's uh, very often when you're teaching something specific it's a tell show do give feedback it's a simple four-step circular process so you tell them what you want to, what they need to know you show them so they get an idea you make them do it and then you give them the corrective feedback and then put them through that cycle. So it's a, that's a real on-the-job if you want to teach him a hands-on skill. If you've ever taken a course uh, uh, or, or, you know, how to play tennis, how to golf, how to cook,
0: that's the way you do it. It's very efficient. Ross, thank you so much for your time today. It's been, it's been great sitting down with you.
1: Yeah. The change you can make in people's lives by the way you approach them And how you help them think through how they learn, what they need to learn, builds a level of competence and confidence and motivation that will enable them to be successful. And through their success, you become successful also. From a manager's perspective, if you can help them there, they will do almost anything for you because they are committed People are committed to their managers much more than to their organizations. Thank you for today. I really enjoyed it.
0: Ross, have a great day, man. Looking forward to it. That was my interview with Ross Tartell, Senior Associate at OPG. To learn more about Ross and what he teaches, head over to organizationalperformancegroup.com. One of the things that OPG does really well is understanding how our clients best learn new information. Much of our success revolves around the concept of learning from our experiences with a person or company and evolving our practices to accommodate their needs as a student. It's not enough to have an encyclopedic knowledge of a topic. Uh, You must understand your audience, empathize with their perspective and their experience, and adapt. Just as Ross was talking about in our interview, much of this understanding is built on data, information you gather when you make the effort to learn about the other person. Great leaders must be willing to get in the weeds to understand the perspective of those they lead, while allowing this space for individuality and personal ambition. Even through the most basic interaction, we can all make a difference by seeing ourselves in the other person's shoes. So try to gain perspective on why they feel that way, rather than just throw an opposing opinion aside. Healthy conflicts are needed for a stronger world, and it's up to us to facilitate those conversations. Thank you for listening to OPG Inspire. This is Robert Roach signing off.